morning. I love to worship with this church. I love to worship with all of you. Your faith is just evident and encouraging to me. It's good to worship God together. Uh, will you open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2? And we will look at verses 11 to 14 this morning. Titus 2, 11 to 14. So we're in Titus, Titus 2, 11 to 14 this morning, the heart of sound doctrine, salvation in Jesus Christ. In Titus, we've been looking at things that accord with sound doctrine across chapter 2. Um, and this morning, we get to spend our time looking at the heart of the sound doctrine. So Paul's been instructing Titus to teach the church in what accords with sound doctrine. But now we look at the sound doctrine itself and really at the core and the heart of the sound doctrine uh, this morning, which then this doctrine informs and leads to the kind of life that Titus is to exhort the church to. So remember that chapter 2 began with, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he went into all kinds of thorough and helpful and detailed instruction on the Christian life in the church, in the household, and in the community. And those are the things that accord with sound doctrine, lives of godliness in the different spheres and the different callings that God has called us to. Those are the things that accord with sound doctrine, or as we saw last Sunday, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Those things adorn the truths that we hold dear and that means that we shouldn't think that daily life in our homes, daily life at work, and just in your neighborhood, your normal life, going about the things of life, is not an unimportant realm. It's not a necessary evil. Rather, those are the places where the glories of the gospel get worked out and adorned and put on display in real daily life. So we always carry the truths of the gospel out into every corner of life as we teach what accords with the sound doctrine. We're applying that doctrine out into every sphere, every area, every day of your week, everywhere you go. We carry those truths out into the corners of life. And then we also constantly return back to the doctrines themselves that we are adorning. We come back to the heart and the core in the gospel itself, the glorious doctrines of the faith to drink from that fresh spring from which everything else flows. And so we're constantly doing both of those things, returning to the doctrine itself, rooting and grounding ourselves in the doctrine, then applying it out into life and showing that it accords, what accords with sound doctrine is being worked out in all of our life, returning back to the doctrine that flows out into all of life. And we're constantly doing all of that in the Christian life because without that fountain, that core of the sound doctrine itself, nothing else works. There is no life anywhere else without that fountain of good doctrine. There's nothing to carry out into our lives and our jobs and our work and our neighborhoods. So let's read our next section of Titus as Paul returns back from the application of the doctrine into every corner, now back to the foundational doctrine itself in Titus 2, 11 to 14. 
And all this is kind of my explanation of the first word of verse 11, for. This is the ground. The reason we're doing all of that and living the Christian life out in every corner of our lives, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Verse 15 is a bit of a transitional verse, somewhat kind of taking us from that core doctrine then into where he's going to go next. But since it's the last one hanging on the end of the chapter, we'll read that one too, though it'll kind of be its own transition into the next section of the letter. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So this passage, Titus 2, 11 to 14, is the heart of sound doctrine, salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's delightful to sit and to meditate on these things again and to return to the fountain from which everything else flows. So let's start in verse 11. We are saved by God's grace. The grace of God has appeared, Paul says. The word he uses for appeared here is related to our word for epiphany. It refers to the light like a spotlight shining on something, something being illuminated, something being brought out into light for you to see. The grace of God has appeared. It has, God has shown a spotlight on his grace in the coming of Christ. So what is grace? We don't want to assume uh, these things here. They're so foundational, so important that we don't want to just assume We know what it means. The grace of God has appeared. What is this grace? If God's shining a spotlight onto his grace in the person of Christ, let's stop and examine it in the bright lights. John Frame says, grace is God's sovereign, unmerited favor given to those who deserve his wrath. It's God's sovereign, unmerited, that's undeserved favor given to those who deserve his wrath. God's grace is his benevolence, is his favor. It's his face shining upon you. It's his good disposition towards us, even though we deserve the opposite. It is the favor of God, God's face shining upon you. And this kind of definition is important We need to define grace. What do we mean when we say the grace of God has appeared to understand clearly what his grace is? But now let me try to describe it in another way that puts feet on it by a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, I I think sometimes if men did but understand grace, they would be sure to accept the Lord Jesus. I heard of of a minister, this is Spurgeon still, I heard of a minister in Edinburgh who went to visit one of his poor people He heard that she was in deep poverty and therefore he went to take her help. When he came to her house, he could not make anybody hear, though he knocked loud and long. 
Seeing her sometime after, he said, Janet, I knocked at your door with help for you, but you did not hear me. What time did you come, sir, said she. It was about 12 o'clock. Oh, she said, I did hear you, but I thought it was the man calling for the rent. Just so. Men do hear the calls of Christ, but they are willfully deaf because they think he wants them to do something. But he does not want anything of you. He wants you to receive what he has already done. He comes laden with mercy, with his hands full of blessing, and he knocks at your door. You have only to open it, and he will enter in, and salvation will enter with him. God comes with grace. He's not coming to exact the rent, though he would be right to do so. He has every right to do so. But that's not how God appears in the person of Christ. He comes with grace. He comes with help. He comes with the grace of salvation. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Don't ever forget that we are saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We did not call down that grace. We didn't seek for it. We certainly didn't go and get it. We didn't summon it. We didn't earn it. We didn't work for it. While we were shaking our fist at God, while we were yet sinners, while we were in high rebellion against him, ignoring him, running from him, hiding from him, while we were doing that, his grace appeared. Apart from our initiative, but by the initiative of the sovereign God who shows mercy to whom he wills, his grace has appeared for you. You're not a Christian because God's impressed with you or because you made the right decision. You are a Christian by the sheer grace of God, not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Don't you love that? Don't you love the grace of God? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If you know your absolute spiritual poverty before God, your absolute inability to bring him anything to earn or merit his favor, his face shining upon you, if you know that deep in your heart and deep in your bones, then you know that your only hope is the grace of God. And that's what you have. You have a God of sovereign grace. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I just wish I could do justice to rightly extol the glories of this little phrase to you, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. May the Holy Spirit illumine the glories of the grace of God in our hearts by his word as we meditate on them together. This little phrase is all of life and hope and joy and redemption. We live by this truth. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people.
And by this grace, God brings salvation to us. He brings forgiveness for every sin, the removal of guilt before him, the cleansing of our sin. Have you sinned against God? Have you sinned against God today, already this morning? If you sinned against God this week, do you recognize the fallenness of your heart, the imperfection of what you can bring to God, particularly apart from Christ Jesus? Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there is nothing good though we rejoice that we now stand in Christ, as Tommy reminded us a few weeks ago, new creatures. And yet we still sin and we still depend on his grace day by day. So God brings propitiation. Christ bears God's wrath in our place so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of your sin, You deserve the wrath of God. And yet Christ has borne that wrath in your place so that there's no condemnation left for you. Praise God. Christ brings deliverance from the devil whom we once served and transfers us out of the domain of darkness. We all once walked and followed the prince of the power of the air among the sons of disobedience among whom we all once Walked. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We were members of the kingdom of darkness. But in Christ Jesus, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. In Christ Jesus, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. He has saved you from your sin. He has saved you from the wrath of God. He has saved you from the devil and from your servitude to him. God's salvation brings regeneration and new life in Christ so that dead hearts come alive and abound in the fruits of the Holy Spirit. You were dead in the transgressions and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. You had no real spiritual life in you. We were like zombies walking without real life inside. But the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation And so he has caused you to be regenerated, recreated, reborn, born again in Christ Jesus so that your dead heart has come alive and you had a heart that was just as unmoving as a rock, as unfeeling, unalive as a stone. And he has taken that out and given you a heart of flesh, a beating heart that pumps blood through your body and now abounds in the fruits of the Holy Spirit by the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation, which brings reconciliation with God so that we are now at peace with heaven. You are now at peace with your father, adopted as a child of God into his family. You were estranged, strangers from God. You were orphans, but now you are members of the family and the household of God. Behold, what manner of love the father has given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. And so we are. The salvation of God that comes by his grace brings deliverance from death and everlasting life in the promise of a resurrected body that will live forever without death or pain 
or sadness. The grace of God has come in salvation and gives you the hope of everlasting life. You were destined to death. You were dead on the inside, dead in your sins and your transgressions, and you were headed towards the second death, the lake of fire, eternal death, and he has rescued you from that. So now your future, you have come alive in the inner being through your regeneration. Then when this body passes, you will get a new glory body that matches the new heart you've been given and you will live forever in a new heavens and a new earth without sickness or sorrow or death ever again. Amen. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. It is so rich. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Notice he doesn't say for each person, but for all people. The word is plural. This is no universal salvation, as though God forgives every single individual indiscriminately. This is for his elect who are shown to be his by faith in Christ Jesus. This is not merely the offer of the grace of salvation to all, but the securing of it for none. Rather, this is the sure accomplishment of salvation for all whom the Father has given to the Son. If this salvation was merely offered, then it would be secured by some act from you, which would mean it was no longer purely the gift of grace. But we are born again in Christ, as John says, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this salvation is for all people. As Christ expands the covenant from Israel to the nations, the salvation is for all the people, all the plural people, all the peoples, all the nations who are now, every nation under the heavens is now streaming in to the salvation of God in Christ Jesus. The grace of God appears in the proclamation of the gospel. And this salvation is all of grace. It's just as free as you can imagine. It is not 99% God and 1% you. Salvation is all of grace. The grace is not the result of works, but rather works are the result of grace. And that's the next verse, verse 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so the next thing we see is that God's grace trains us in righteousness. The grace of God appears bringing salvation and training us in righteousness. So the, the grace appears, it does several things brings us salvation, and trains us in righteousness. The grace of God is not the result of works, but the grace of God produces good works. As the reformers said, we are saved through faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone because part of the gift that the grace of God brings you is a righteous life. And what a gift that is. Grace trains us away from evil. That's verse 12. Training us, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace trains us away from evil. 
Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So he says two things that grace trains us away from, and then several things that grace establishes us in. The first thing is that grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and to renounce worldly passions. When God shows us his undeserved favor in Christ, it forms us into the kind of people who resist all ungodliness. God's grace opens our eyes to see his glory and his preeminence in all things, and therefore moves us to renounce everything that would oppose him or offend him. God's grace teaches us to renounce the longings and the lusts we feel for worldly things. In Titus 3.3, he says that we were once slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were slaves to our passions. Whatever you felt, whatever your strongest passions were, that owned you, that controlled you, and it drove you, and it directed you. It was your master. You longed for stuff so bad, and we lived our whole lives trying to satisfy those insatiable longings for pleasure that we were enslaved by them. But when the grace of God comes, we are satisfied in him. We know the joy of contentment, the joy of thankfulness, and we are set free from consuming passions that enslave us to pleasure, money, power, sex, ease, fame, or whatever passions you were a slave to. Do you love ungodliness? Are you enslaved to worldly passions? Look to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Receive him, and he will forgive you and set you free. As he has done for you, the people of God. So grace teaches us to renounce the former way of life, Training us, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and then it trains us positively to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace trains us toward the good. Grace trains us to live self-controlled lives. God's grace forms us as people who are in control of our appetites and our desires. We are not driven by them, but we are in control of ourselves. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, self-control. Grace forms us into people who are sensible and able to moderate our passions rather than being led around by them. Grace gives us back control of our life so that we are not dragged around by our passions. Now, sinners who are enslaved by their passions, those who have not been set free by Christ, think that they're choosing their passions, and so they think that everything is under control. Do you remember that? Those of you who were saved late enough in life that you remember what it was like to be dragged around by your passions, you thought you were in control, didn't you? You thought you were choosing those passions, but it's only once you decide for whatever reason, by the grace of God, to try to set yourself against those passions that controlled you, that you realized, actually, you couldn't. 
and you were a slave to them. If anyone here is living by worldly passions, anyone who happens to be here who's not in Christ, who's not yet given your life to Christ, I would challenge you to try to set your worldly passions aside for a time and see if you can. If you're outside of Christ, you will find that you're actually not in control of your sin, but your sin is in control of you. And acknowledging that is the first step to calling out for the grace of God to rescue you. But for those who have tasted of the grace of God, those who have put their trust in Jesus, grace has trained you to live upright and godly lives in Christ Jesus. Not a life of perfection. If anybody says he's without sin, he is a liar. But truly and fundamentally, you have been trained to live upright and godly life. You've been set free from the power of sin. Sin does not own you anymore. Because grace trains us to live upright and godly lives. It teaches us to be just and righteous. Some think that grace destroys justice, but the word for upright here is dikaios, the word for justice, the word for righteousness. Grace is not opposed to righteousness. Grace actually trains us in righteous lives. The grace of God does not produce license to sin, I think some people are afraid of grace because they think if they live by God's grace, it will remove the motivation to obey. We think, hey, if everything's already forgiven, if there's no condemnation, then I guess, then I would just do whatever I wanted. Remove the motivation to obey. They think if you don't need obedience to earn God's favor, then you won't have any motivation to be obedient. Why be obedient anyway? but nothing is farther from the truth. You don't need to be afraid of living and fully walking and receiving the grace of God because what the grace of God actually does is not produce licentious lives. The grace of God actually grounds and roots you in righteousness. Grace trains you to live righteously. You can't overdo it on the grace of God. The more you walk in and behold and rejoice in God's grace towards you, the more you want to obey him and the more you want to live a godly life that honors him. He who is forgiven much loves much. You see, this isn't about our justification. We should be clear here in our understanding of salvation and how it works. This isn't about our justification as though it's producing works that are good enough for you to be accepted before God. Just listen and make sure that you have clear thinking about salvation and how this works. The salvation of God involves justification, which is you're being accounted righteous before God, accepted before him. So your justification, make sure that this is really clear in your mind. Justification is God's legal declaration about you, which affects your standing before him, your acceptance with him. So when God justifies you, he legally declares you righteous based on no righteousness of your own, based on the righteousness of Christ accounted to you, not infused into you, but just accounted as though it were yours by faith alone, apart from works of the law. That's your justification. That's the basis of your acceptance with God. Justification by the righteousness of Christ 
alone, apart from anything that you've done. And you are now fully accepted before God based on the righteousness of Christ. None of your righteousness is involved in your justification. None of it, not in the slightest bit. And if it were, it would ruin your justification. But then sometimes I think we try to file verses like this under justification, thinking it means we're, well, yeah, grace trains us to righteousness in that kind of legal sense. Means we're righteous, we're forgiven before God in a legal sense, and we are, but that's, verse 12 is not talking about justification, is it? Verse 12 is then talking about another aspect of our salvation, which is our sanctification. So in justification, we are accounted righteous, apart from our own works, has nothing to do with us. Another part of our salvation is our sanctification, by which we are born again and made holy and given a new nature that actually is holy. And then we are transformed progressively in the works of our lives as our lives unfold and we grow and are conformed more and more into the image of God in actual deeds of righteousness, actual righteous living. And and those things are both part of the salvation of God that are ours, but we must not confuse them because if you come to think that the righteous deeds that you're actually doing are the foundation of your acceptance with God, then you will become a legalist hoping in your own works and you will not be saved. <coughs> but if you forget about sanctification and think, well, it's, it's all grace, it's not about works, that's nothing to do with works, and then you just go on thinking, I'll just live in sin and not worry about it, well, then you're missing the sanctification side of things. This is important that we understand these, that we keep them distinguished in our minds, and that we always hold them together in our lives. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled in the present age, not as part of our acceptance with God, not as part of our justification, but as part of another gift of God, the gift of a righteous life. Isn't a righteous life better than a wicked life? If you're not crystal clear on those things, I'd encourage you and exhort you to work to gain clarity on them because that distinction is of utmost importance in getting the gospel right and living well before God. A great place to continue to refine your thinking on that and and teach others in it if you have family and if you have children to to pick up the 1689 London Baptist Confession. It has specific chapters on justification and sanctification, just going through in wonderful, beautiful detail on exactly how each of those work and how they interact with one another. You can find it for free online or you can pick up a copy here at the church. So here and now, grace trains us to live in joyful obedience to God, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, as righteous and just, and godly lives, lives that are oriented towards God in all things, focusing on God. What would he want? What would please him? What would bring honor to my Father in heaven? He has shown me grace and saved me. I want to do everything for him. I want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. In the present age, it says in the present age. It's not just that one day we'll be perfected. We will be. But it's in the here and now, it's in this age that his grace trains us to walk in righteousness by his grace. What a gift it is to walk in his ways by his gracious work in us. So God's grace saves us and trains us to godliness now in this age but it also roots us by hope in the future, in the age to come, when we will be perfect and this process of sanctification will be complete. And that's the next verse, verse 13. 
We're going to pick up 12. Training us. Remember, the grace of God has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for, this is what's coming, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live these godly lives waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see that your faith is rooted in the past, in the plan of God and the work of Christ. The grace of God has appeared. It's active in the present, training us to live godly lives in the present age. It's active right now. And it has this future end, this future goal, this blessed hope that pulls you forward into all that God has for you by his grace. We live godly lives waiting for the appearing of the glory. Notice this, this idea of appearing. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared and we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So his grace has appeared. His glory is going to appear, and we're waiting for that day. We're pressing on towards the full revealing of the glory of God, of his salvation. The favor is ours. The enjoyment of all that that favor means is yet to come, at least in full we love God now. We trust God now. We have lots of peace and joy and hope now. We experience the fruits of the Spirit, but imperfectly now and with trouble and with suffering and with affliction mixed in together, but the fullness of all of it is coming. The sun has risen in Christ's first appearing, but there are clouds that sometimes obscure the full shining of the light of the glory of God on us in this present age. But there is coming a day when you will bask in the full, unhindered, direct light of the glory of God forever. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's coming. And it will be better than you've ever dared to imagine. Press on. Keep going. Keep fighting the good fight. Do you ever get weary in the battle? Do you ever wear down and persevering in hope on this long and hard and narrow way that we're on? Press on and don't forget the glory that is ahead. The day of glory will involve resurrected bodies, the unmediated presence of God with his people forever, sin fully behind in the rearview mirror, sorrow and suffering a distant memory, and an eternity of life and joy in the presence of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Motivate yourself by that hope. Remember that hope. Meditate on it. Fix your eyes on that glorious hope that's set in front of you. If you hike to Ice Lakes, has anybody hiked to Ice Lakes? Uh, I've only hiked part of the way to Ice Lakes. Uh, I'll blame it on my friends that I was hiking with who were from lower elevation and got tired. I'm sure I would have made it. But the trail is long and hard and steep, and it just keeps going. And you think, are we ever going to get there? But when you're hiking that path and you're trying to get there and you're on this steep thing and you're thinking, why am I doing this? It's a great question to ask yourself. Why am I doing this? Because I want to get to the ice lakes, because I want to see these beautiful, pristine, blue lakes. And I've already seen the picture of them, so it's fine. But 
that you remind yourself along the way why you're going, what you're doing, of your destination, of your goal. We're doing this, and it's hard, but we're going to press on because it's going to be worth it when we get there. And you need to remember, and if you lose sight of why you're doing it, and all you can think of is kind of the pain of trudging up this mountain, it's hard to press on. How much more is you're in the hard and narrow path to life do you need to stop and remember the glories that are ahead of you? We battle now. We fight. We daily die to ourselves, and it's hard but we will enter into God's rest and the battle will be won and death will be over and we will truly live. Press on, it's coming and remember and fix it in your imagination and call it up and meditate on it. As Paul says, encourage one another with these things. Remind each other of the glory that's ahead and press on. And notice along the way here that Jesus is God we know this, we confess this, but it's worth noticing and rejoicing in whenever the Bible brings it up. Did you see what verse 13 said? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. The Bible's abundantly clear on this. Jesus Christ is God. He is your Savior. Worship him. Hope in him. He will never fail you. And lastly, in verse 14, we see that God's grace is Christ for us so that we can be for him. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Verse 14 says, Jesus gave himself for us. He gives us so many things Jesus gives us so many gifts and he does it by giving first and foremost his own self. Behold the favor of God, the generous, benevolent grace of God that he would give us himself. Is there anything that Jesus won't do for you? Is there anything that he will hold back from you? Anything too important to him to give to you and for you? No, because he's already given you his own self. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. To redeem is to pay a ransom price to set someone free. Jesus paid the Father perfect righteousness and an atoning sacrificial death so that we could die to sin in him and be set free from all lawlessness. Do you see that's what it says? He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's what you've been bought out of. You've been redeemed from all lawlessness. He has paid the price and you are free. You were enslaved to lawlessness. You were owned by the sin in which you once walked, but Christ died to set us free. Sin no longer owns you. What a relief. What a hard, lying, murderous, and destructive master lawlessness is. How kind of Christ to give himself to redeem you from all lawlessness. And God's grace is Christ for us. He gave himself for us to redeem us for all lawlessness so that we can be for him. We are set free from lawlessness so that we can belong to Christ. It says he gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We no longer belong to sin. We belong to Christ. 
You've been redeemed from lawlessness in order that you might belong to him, that you might be his very possession for his enjoyment. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave himself for you that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ gave himself for us so that we can be for him, for his enjoyment, a pure and spotless bride. This happens as we are purified and zealous for good works, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Give Christ what he deserves. Let Christ see and be satisfied. Trust him. Lean into the grace of God. Hope in his return and that hope will purify you. Your good works are the fruit that Christ deserves for his glorious grace. Don't be casual about good works. Don't be casual about obedience. Be zealous for good works. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works works. Confess your sins to God and be purified in the work of Christ. Repent of your sins. Return to the grace of God in Christ Jesus in faith and be trained by his grace to live a godly life to him. Run hard after obedience. Pursue it with zeal with your eye fixed on Christ, rooted in the grace of God, desiring to be pleasing to him on the day when he is revealed from heaven. So I'm giving some exhortations here to you to participate in that work, right? He gave himself to purify us, a people who are zealous for good works. So pursue purity and pursue good works. Do it zealously. But notice that this text isn't primarily about the exhortation of you to those things. It's just a statement that this is what he is doing in you. And when you believe that, you begin to receive it by faith. So it's worth stopping to exhort and to remind, hey, he, he died and gave himself for us so that we would be zealous for good works. So let's do that. Let's be zealous for good works. But the point here is, this is what Christ is doing and will do in us for his enjoyment. And isn't that wonderful? He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the work of Christ in you by grace. And it happens as by hearing with faith. You hear that that's what he is doing. That's what he has done. That's what he is doing. And that's what he's going to do. And he will finish the work he started in you. And he will bring you to a place of perfect purity. That's the work of Christ. Hear it with faith. Believe it. And it's yours.
It's the fountain of all truth and everything good. The doctrine of God, salvation by grace in Jesus Christ. Hear it, believe it, rejoice in it, and praise God. Amen. God, thank you that our salvation is all of grace. Thank you for the abundance of the gifts that you give to us, redeeming us from lawlessness, saving us from sin, death, and the devil, transforming us, justifying us, sanctifying us, giving us new hearts and new lives, and by your grace, training us in righteousness purifying us, that we might be a people zealous for good works. And so, God, we hear this glorious work of your grace. We receive it gladly by faith. And we ask that as that happens, that you would cause us as a church and as individuals to just abound with good works for the enjoyment of Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, you have purchased us and we belong to you and it's our joy, and it's our glory. So continue your good work in us, God, that we might be a wonderful bride, spotless, presented to Christ on the day of Christ Jesus, and zealous for good works, even in this present age. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.